This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 4th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Suzanne Bard interviews news writer Rich Stone on the state of science in Iran. And David Grimm is here with stories on the many benefits of a good night's sleep, plastic and birds, and counting trees. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the healthful benefits of a good night's sleep. This is something that really speaks to me very strongly right now. I love sleep and always seem to miss out on it these days. Now I have a new cause to crave it, staving off the common cold. Dave, I thought this was common knowledge. (laughs) It kind of is. And and actually, from my own anecdotal experience, I find that when I get less sleep, when I'm sleep deprived, I tend to get sick more often. I think a lot of people have that experience. But it has been just that. It's been pretty much anecdotal until now. And what's really cool about this new study is that researchers actually tested this idea experimentally. They really pulled out all the stops to test this, in my opinion. I mean, they rented hotel rooms. Can you walk us through they the whole thing? They went to the hotel floor, I think. Right, right. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, so they, they got a hundred, about 164 volunteers. And the first thing they did was figure out how many hours a night these people normally sleep. And then what they did was they sequestered them in a hotel for five days so that they wouldn't get exposure to the outside world and the viruses. And then with a lot of them, they dripped cold virus into their nose. It's called the rhinovirus, which is responsible for the common cold, into their nose. And they tried to figure out who got sick by correlating that with who was getting the most amount of sleep and who was getting the least amount of sleep. And the proof that these subjects actually got a cold was also very stringent. Did you notice that? They weighed the snot. (laughs) They actually uh, had these people um, blow their nose into tissues, as people with colds are wont to do. And the researchers weighed the tissues to see how much snot was coming out. They also did some other tests a little bit more, perhaps, rigorous. They took blood samples to see whether these people had antibodies to the virus in their body, a sign that they were trying to fight an infection. Also looked for the amount of congestion that these people were experiencing. They dripped dye into the back of their nose and timed how long it took to reach the back of their throat. The longer it took, 
more congested people were. How big of an impact did sleep or sleep deprivation have on the subject's immune system? How likely were they to get a common cold? The impact was remarkably big. The researchers found that people who slept fewer than five hours a night were more than four times more likely to get sick than those who slept seven hours or more. Even those who slept five to six hours were still more than four times uh, more likely to get sick. So what does that mean, that you need to get some minimum amount of sleep in order to benefit from the immune-boosting properties of it? Well, the researchers found that people who slept six to seven hours a night were at no greater risk of catching the cold than those who slept seven hours or more. So it seems to be that six hours is kind of the magic number here. So is the next study going to be proof that not wearing a hat can make you get a cold? Or proof that chicken soup cures colds? We'll wait to find out. (laughs) Next up, we have a story on the future diet of seabirds. The big concern about the future diet of seabirds is that some portion of it may be plastic. We've had stories on the podcast before about increasing concentrations of plastic in the ocean and missing plastic hiding in the ocean. Dave, what are the numbers like right now for plastic waste in the ocean? There is a lot of plastic in the ocean. There is about 300,000 tons per year of plastic entering the ocean, so much so that in some places known as garbage patches, every square kilometer of surface water has 600,000 plastic bits floating in it. This new analysis tried to estimate what will happen down the road as these numbers inevitably increase. What do they look at specifically? Well, one of the big concerns is birds. There are dozens of seafaring bird species, and even today about 90% of them are consuming plastic. Now, that's a really bad thing because this plastic can concentrate environmental pollutants, which can be very bad for the birds. But the plastic itself can be bad. It can build up in the stomach, it can block intestines, and it can make it so the birds aren't able to eat enough food and they essentially starve to death. So the question in this new study was, how much worse is this problem going to get in the next few decades? What kind of numbers did they come up with and what kind of birds did they look at? They looked at as many seafaring species as they could, about 186 species from 42 different genera or major groups of species. These included birds like albatrosses, gulls, petrels, and penguins. And what they found is by 2050, 99.8% of individuals in all of these species will have eaten plastic. Is the influx of plastic in the ocean a danger for other animals as well? Well, that's the concern. Everything from microorganisms to whales are exposed to this plastic, could potentially be harmed by it, or harmed by eating other animals that eat the plastic. Lastly, we have a story on the latest tree census. We all know trees are good for the planet, sucking up CO2, supporting ecosystems, doing their plantly duties, but we also use tree products in our everyday life. Paper, paper napkins, timber... What we don't know is what the impact of these uses have on trees worldwide. Why has it been so hard to track trees, Dave? As you can imagine, we can't really go around counting all the trees. And so what researchers have relied on in the past is satellite images, but it's a little hard to figure out just how many trees you're looking at from a satellite image. So what this new study did was it actually combined satellite imagery with boots on the ground, specifically an organization called Plant the Planet, which has literally planted 12 billion trees in 193 countries in the past several years. And so these people are already on the ground. So the idea was have them count the number of trees that they're seeing in the area that they're 
planting trees and use those numbers combined with the satellite numbers to extrapolate the total number of trees on the planet. The good news is that the number is a little higher than we thought it might be, but there's also some bad news too. Right. There are about 3 trillion trees on the planet, according to the estimate, which is actually eight times more than scientists have thought. But the bad news is, is that this number is shrinking pretty rapidly. And the reason is, is because we're losing, according to these calculations, about 15 billion trees a year. And we're only planting about 5 billion trees a year. So there's a net loss of 10 billion trees a year. Big numbers. Sounds pretty scary, but should we actually be scared? Well, these are scary numbers. What experts say is it's not just the numbers we should be concerned about, though. It's actually the type of trees. Some trees are much better at, for example, sequestering CO2. Some trees are more important for forest biodiversity than others. So we have to look beyond the raw numbers and try to figure out exactly which types of trees are disappearing. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new hope for treatment for a very rare disorder that turns muscle into bone. Also, an update on a story we ran last year about a vampire squirrel with the world's fluffiest tail. Turns out the first video of this elusive creature has been taken. And finally, for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a new journal that's just publishing ideas for studies. Not studies, but just the ideas for studies. And why the founder of a controversial science website has decided to reveal his identity. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Because of isolation brought on by economic sanctions, scientists in Iran face many challenges when it comes to conducting even the most basic research. Science Magazine international news editor Rich Stone recently traveled to Iran, visiting the scientists in the lab and in the field, and encountered a surprisingly upbeat outlook. I'm Suzanne Bard. This was actually my second trip to Iran, but my first time back in 10 years. I took my first trip to Iran in 2005. It was a very interesting period. It was during the presidential elections. And at the time, there was a reformist candidate going up against a very conservative candidate for president who eventually won. That would be Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And this was a period of great anticipation about what might come next. At that time, Iranian science was doing pretty well. Iran was under sanctions, but not as heavily sanctioned as it is today. There was a lot of optimism. There was letdown after that. There was a period of several years where Iran struggled, and that brings us up to my second trip to Iran, which I made at the end of July and early August. So did you see kind of a change in mood? from when you were last there? Yes, there is amazingly positive, optimistic mood in the scientific community in Iran these days. I was very impressed by that. They certainly went through some dark times during the period of heavy sanctions imposed on the country, especially as the U.S. and other Western powers became increasingly frustrated with Iran over its nuclear program. The sanctions were ratcheted up and increasingly the Iranian scientific community suffered. 
the period of optimism, I would say, began with the final agreement on the nuclear pact, which came in the middle of July. How did the sanctions affect scientists trying to do their jobs? The sanctions became increasingly brutal, as one scientist put it. It got to the point where the sanctions affected just about every part of a scientist's life there. So the sanctions prohibited Iran from importing most high-tech equipment, first of all. The sanctions have severed Iran from the international banking system, so scientists cannot subscribe to journals. It's even got to the point where, for example, stone cannot be imported or exported to Iran. So the intention of that was to crimp the construction industry there. But the impact was also felt by scientists. So paleontologists who collect fossils there, they could not import fossils from other countries to do comparative analysis. They could not export them either. The scientists could not import radioisotopes to date samples. So this particular sanction was not meant to target scientists, but scientists were swept up in it. And that example is something that I found in just about every uh, lab there. I mean, there were scientists from across a wide range of disciplines who were facing a variety of hurdles, and it really complicated people's lives there. So they developed a lot of strategies for coping with sanctions. What are some of these strategies, Rich? Well, one strategy has been to either invent or replace technologies which they cannot import. One example is the Institute for Seismology. Around 2010, the sanctions were tightened and the Institute could not import seismic sensors. And the seismic sensors have a variety of peaceful uses to try to serve as an early warning for earthquakes, to try to measure shaking at dams. After Iran could not import them starting in 2010, the Institute was faced with a crisis. They needed sensors, and so what they did was they invented their own sensor. It's about the size of a small bowler hat, and they call it the HAT, hat sensor. And it was their solution. When they could not import something, they were forced to make their own. A more sophisticated technology was something that the Iranian Light Source Facility, the country's biggest basic science project ever, this synchrotron, which they hope to build starting in 2018 or so, they had to manufacture an ultra-stable power supply for their electromagnets. Now, this is a very sophisticated piece of equipment. They could not import it. So the last five years, they actually did make one, and the sophistication is such that it's comparable to ultra-stable power supplies that are used in existing synchrotron facilities. So the director of the Synchrotron Project, he said when his team started out five years ago to try to make one of these, he said, people laughed at us. And after they succeeded, he says, people aren't laughing anymore. I think it's a testimony to the resourcefulness that Iranian scientists have had to find. I mean, they were forced to rely on their own ingenuity in overcoming sanctions that place pretty strict limits on their ability to do research. And if scientists want to publish their work, 
What options do they have? So the sanctions are a little bit confusing, and there's been a misunderstanding among many Western journals that any submission of a manuscript from Iran is subject to sanctions. They misunderstand or misbelieve that they're required to reject a manuscript outright if it comes from Iran. And the fact of the matter is that only submissions from an Iranian government laboratory, such as the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, are subject to sanctions. So any manuscripts sent in for review from academia are largely able to be reviewed. And if a reviewer comes back with a request for additional experiments, that can be a pretty devastating blow. It has to be prepared to respond to that request. It has to basically have anticipated it because they have such trouble acquiring research materials that if a request for additional data comes in and they do not have a particular kind of reagent in stock, that can delay the completion of the experiments that might be required to respond to a reviewer. And this has resulted many times, what I've been told, in scientists there being scooped because they have a delay in publishing. And if they're in a very competitive field like stem cell research, even a delay of a few weeks can have a very harmful impact. And some reviewers at Western journals reject manuscripts outright just to play it safe. Despite this misunderstanding, Iranian scientific publications have been skyrocketing. There was a study just a few years ago charting the explosion of scientific publishing. It's a pretty sharp upward curve. So despite the fact that they have been facing problems with publishing, the Iranian scientific community has been pretty prolific. You mentioned the nuclear pact signed back in July. What could this mean for science in Iran? So after months of negotiations, Iran and the five members of the UN Security Council and Germany negotiating with Iran over the fate of its nuclear program, there was a successful conclusion to those negotiations in the middle of July. And the outcome of that is that Iran has agreed to dismantle parts of its nuclear establishment. It would basically create a substantial hurdle for Iran to make a nuclear weapon. It would extend what's called the breakout time, the time it would take to acquire enough fissile material to produce a nuclear weapon from the present state of a couple months up to at least a year. And in exchange for that, the U.S. and the other world powers have agreed to remove sanctions that have been applied to Iran because of its nuclear program. It won't remove all of the economic sanctions. There are sanctions which date back from before the concerns about Iran's nuclear program first emerged. But it would be a big boost for the economy of Iran and for the Iranian scientific community. And that's why there's a lot of optimism now. So scientists will benefit in a variety of ways. There's going to be much more potential for collaboration. There will be, if not a perception, but a fundamental fact that it's going to be easier for American scientists to travel to Iran doing research. Eventually, it's going to be much easier for Iranian scientists to import research materials and equipment again. There is going to be a general atmosphere of engagement, and I think that's very important. It's not just within the nuclear area, and there's certainly going to be research in nuclear science that will be facilitated because of the agreement, but it's anticipated that the entire Iranian scientific community is going to benefit.
And switching gears now, you've written about the representation of women in Iranian science. Do they hold positions of authority? In the laboratories that I visited, especially in the biological sciences, biomedical sciences, there are many women working in laboratories. One of the scientists I visited at University of Tehran mentioned that women outnumber men in the scientific workforce in the biological sciences, and certainly in the laboratories I visited, is a pretty skewed ratio. It's about three-quarters women. There are certainly senior women scientists there. I don't know about administrators, so there may be a glass ceiling there. But in terms of the overall scientific workforce, I was very impressed with the fact that there seemed to be ample opportunities. And you also looked into some of the ecological challenges facing Iran today and how the scientific community is responding. What happened to Lake Ermia? Lake Ermia is a salt lake in the northwestern corner of Iran. And about 20 years ago, it was larger than the Great Salt Lake in the state of Utah. So it was a substantial body of water. It's suffered a relatively slow, gradual decline in the past 20 years until just a couple of years ago when the lake really shriveled. At the end of last year, it was only around 10% of its former maximum volume. So that was pretty alarming. There are some pretty severe ecological consequences for the loss of a water body of that size. First of all, the water, when it recedes, it exposes a very salty lake bed that is quite dusty. And when it dries out, all this salty dust is swept up and deposited on farms in that region. The salty soil has had a very ill effect in damaging crops. There are some concerns about the potential health effects of breathing in this salty dust. Another aspect is that the ecology of the lake itself has suffered tremendously. This lake used to be a stopping point for a variety of birds, flamingos, aigrettes. So all of these migratory birds and other birds that frequented Lake Ermia, they don't come there anymore. Their major food source, the endemic brine shrimp, are gone. The water that's left is simply too salty, even for brine shrimp. So you have the loss of wetlands, which once fringed this lake. These wetlands have all dried up. Can the lake be restored? As one scientist put it, it's really a million-dollar question whether Lake Ermia can be restored. No doubt it's an ecological crisis right now. The Iranian government is committing substantial resources to trying to save the lake. So this year it's spending about $600 million. Over 10 years, it's planning to spend around $6 billion. So substantial resources. Can it do it? I think the jury is still out. And it's not clear exactly what approach will be best. The three major tributaries, which supply about 90% of the water flowing into Lake Ermia, have been dammed. And the water has been diverted over the last 20 years for irrigation. So a lot of the water that was flowing naturally into Lake Ermia has been lost. So the result is that the evaporation rate of the lake, which was quite high anyway because it's a very arid environment, the evaporation rate increased, and that's why the lake grew saltier and saltier. In fact, when I had a chance to visit the lake and I was looking out, it reminded me of the Arctic Ocean because it looked like ice flows 
on a deep blue ocean. So there were these basically salt islands, so areas where the water had completely evaporated, surrounded by ponds of remaining lake that were rapidly receding and uh, created the illusion that I was looking at these Arctic ice flows. So it's a very unusual environment. It's a very sad state right now. But the consensus is that Ermia can be saved if the measures are taken now and if they can restore the natural flow, if they can somehow preserve areas of the lake that haven't completely dried up yet. Interesting. And what are some of the other environmental problems facing Iran today? So Iran is a very arid landscape for the most part. So central Iran, even in good years, would get just enough precipitation to keep the rivers flowing. However, in the past five years, they've had drought, and a lot of the central rivers have dried up. So this is posing a tremendous stress on the country's water supply. So some of the interior cities, such as the ancient capital of Isfahan and the cities of Kashan and Yazd, their water supplies now are very squeezed. So that's one factor. Water security is probably the biggest challenge facing Iran now. In another problem that it's been dealing with is loss of forest cover. So in the past 20 years, the forest coverage of Iran has been halved, and it wasn't very much to start with. So now only about 6% of the land in Iran has forest, and the remaining forest is basically under siege. It's under siege from conversion to cropland, it's under siege from wildfires, that's under siege from urban development. So it's facing numerous threats from various quarters. And this sorry state of Iran's forests and the measures that have been taken so far to protect them have actually organized a pretty vibrant community of environmental scientists and environmental activists who have been pushing for positive change. I think that's one of the interesting facets of my trip is that this, I guess you could call it dissent, this criticism of the government, if it's not criticism directed at religious authorities, criticism is tolerated. And so there are a number of NGOs that have sprung up that are quite critical of the government and its handling of environmental issues. And they've had some success. So for instance, at the end of last year, the government had planned to revive a plan to create an ecotourism hub at the only island of Iran in the Caspian Sea. And the environmentalists were quite upset about that. And due to the outcry, it appears that the Iranian government has shelved those plans. And what were the biggest surprises for you when you were investigating the state of science in Iran? The biggest surprise to me, I, I feel, is the resourcefulness, the ingenuity that Iranian scientists have been forced to express. I mean, the sanctions placed tremendous pressure on them. And the response might have been to essentially disassociate from the international community to preserve a modest scientific community, basically keep the scientific activity at a pilot-like level. I half expected that that might be the case, but what I discovered when I was there 
was that the ingenuity of the Iranian scientists was such that they've been able to keep up with the international community despite everything. So the synchrotron facility is just one example of that. There is a plan to start constructing a national astronomy observatory. This observatory has been in the works for about 15 years. And it certainly has had its ups and downs. But again, despite sanctions, they have managed to purchase a world-class mirror. They have a primary 3.4 meter mirror. The construction of the observatory is due to start next spring. So despite the isolation, they managed to persevere and they've managed to keep pace. And I think it's both to the credit of the Iranian scientists working in Iran, but also some of the credit belongs to very large community of Iranian scientists and engineers working overseas. So they've been providing a vital lifeline to their colleagues back home. Thanks for speaking with me, Rich. I really enjoyed it, Suzanne. Thanks very much. Rich Stone reports on his travels to Iran, where he investigated the challenges facing scientists under the economic embargo and their optimism for the future. This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.